Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Hey everyone, hope you're doing well. Welcome back to a brand new edition of the Ariel Helwani Basketball Show. So the 2023 NBA Finals are set. It is going to be the Denver Nuggets against the Miami Heat. I love this matchup. Uh, I think it's fresh, it's fun, it's different. I love any time a long-suffering fan base finally makes it to their respective championship game or series uh, I have, you know, great affinity for the uh, Denver Nuggets. They remind me of some of the teams that I root for who have never gotten over the hump, somewhat forgotten on the West Coast, a very likable team, a very fun team, and they're going up against, you know, kind of the, the gold standard in the NBA, Heat culture, Miami Heat, Pat Riley, Eric Spolstra, Jimmy Butler. They're a great story in their own right, and they just beat the Boston Celtics in Game 7. And one of the great... Game 7 victories, I think, in recent memory, for a team to be up 3-0, to then be staring at a historic collapse, to then go on the road, win in Game 7, and not just win, but like win in dominant fashion, to me was incredibly impressive. That game was never close. Um, And for them to be so confident after the heartbreaking loss in Game 6, and to pretty much guarantee victory, that's what Coach Eric Spolstra and Jimmy Butler did and it was sort of just brushed aside. Pretty damn impressive. And so this week on the podcast, I wanted to preview both teams, tell their stories, not just going into these finals, but like from a historical standpoint with two individuals who know them very, very well. And so today on the podcast, we are talking to the great George Sedano. George Sedano has been covering the NBA for oh, I don't know, 20 plus years. Uh, He is currently the host of Sedano and Cap on ESPN LA 710. Uh, He's a sideline reporter for ESPN and ABC's NBA coverage. He does some play-by-play as well. You can see him on Around the Horn. You can hear him on ESPN radio during games as well. I mean, the guy has been covering not just sports, but the NBA in particular for so long, dating back to the early 2000s, when he was working in South Florida. He's originally from New York, but, you know, is a product of South Florida, moved to uh, the South Florida region when he was six years old, uh, working on, you know, South Florida broadcasts, whether it was radio, TV, Miami Heat broadcasts, radio, TV, for many, many years, uh, all the way up until 2013. So he was there when they won their first championship. He was there when they won their two championships with the uh, the Heatles, LeBron James, Chris Bosh, 
And Dwayne Wade, of course, he knows this franchise, as you'll hear in this episode, like the back of his hand. His memory is outstanding. And uh, he's a great representative. Even though he works in LA, to me, the perfect representative of uh, what the Heat are all about, their history. Talk to us about Heat culture, about their ups and downs, and about this incredible run, just the second eighth seed to make it to the NBA Finals. Of course, the first was back in 1999 when the New York Knicks did it. Unfortunately, they fell to the San Antonio Spurs. We'll find out if the Heat will suffer a similar fate against the Nuggets. But for now, let us celebrate the Miami Heat. What they've done this playoff season, but really what they have done you know, over the last two plus decades, ever since they hired Pat Riley in 1995, it's been like a rocket ship. They've had some ups and downs, but they've they've had a lot of ups and it's been uh, pretty incredible to watch. So without further ado, here's my conversation with the one and only George Sedano. Enjoy. Let me just establish this because we're, we're speaking on a, on a Tuesday, a beautiful Tuesday in late May. The Miami Heat have just punched their ticket to the NBA Finals. Finals start on Thursday. They're playing the Denver Nuggets. They were staring at a historic collapse and they were able to, you know, do the old Heisman and, and uh, brush that aside and, and win on the road. But for you, born in New York, but grew up in Miami, you are a Miami Heat fan. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's fair to say. I moved to Miami when I was six. The Miami Heat didn't even exist at that time. Wow. Uh, first memory of the Heat? First memory of the Heat is the Heat's opening season uh, in 1988, going to the old Miami arena, taking the Metro Rail there. The uh, public transportation in Miami is terrible, although it did take you to the to the arena. It literally used to drop you off in front of this big pink building. Uh, it was old school Miami Vice look, right, with the... Uh, the neon sign that uh, looked like something out of the 80s. And I remember going there and watching Ronnie Cycli, their first ever number one overall pick, playing with guys like John Sunvold and Rory Sparrow, former Nick, uh, and and all those guys being really terrible uh, for many, many years until eventually they, a couple of years until eventually they, a couple of playoff appearance. Uh, by the way, Ronnie Cycli uh, always had a soft spot in my heart for him. My my mom is from Beirut. Syracuse, too. Yeah. And Syracuse, yeah. But, you know, like to see a Lebanese right. big man yeah. in, in the NBA, oh, unbelievable. And such a great yeah. head of hair. Uh, later became yeah. a great DJ as well. Excellent DJ. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. I saw him perform in Miami at a club called Mint many, many, many years ago. What a legend. Um, all right. So fast forward several years, you're a fan. You, you now start to, you know, work in the sports media scene in South Florida. You're working on their broadcast. Just curious, as someone who grew up a fan, was it ever hard to take off the, you know, fan hat and just be the, you know, unbiased journalist? Or were they okay with that? I mean, I know the likes of Jason Jackson, he he kind of leans into that, right? Were they okay with it when you were working uh, earlier in your career on the Heat broadcast? Well, they basically raised me, Ariel, in a lot of ways, because my first full season uh, with the Heat was 2003, when Dwayne Wade uh, was drafted that particular season. Actually, my first real assignment covering them on a regular basis was the draft where Dwayne Wade was drafted, which uh, obviously we all know LeBron went number one in that draft. Prior to that, I had been kind of more of a part-time person on on that beat from a radio perspective. I was doing talk shows. But I was also kind of covering teams at that time. I was more of a football guy, interestingly enough, at that time in the early 2000s. I was covering the Hurricanes, who were obviously incredible at that time, uh, and the Dolphins, who you know were pretty good uh, still at that time. Um, so it, it's funny that I end up on that beat, basically, for lack of a better phrase, uh, in 2003. And yeah, look, there's always some level of fandom 
but you have to subjugate that stuff, right? Like I grew up in an era where, you know, there was literally no cheering in the press box mm. and you were scolded if you did anything like that. Uh, there was an old PR guy in football's different because the PR, uh, the media section is enclosed, right? It's like in a, in a booth. Um, and you could generally hear like this old school PR guy for the Dolphins named Harvey Green go, no cheering in the press box, please. No cheering in the press box. Um, so like that's that was my indoctrination to media, right? Like you zip it up, you just keep you internalize it all and you you watch what you're watching and just kind of report on it. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't that hard because, I, you know, I, I, I think at that time it was taken very, very, very seriously. Uh, there weren't the blurred lines that we have now in a lot of situations. So, yeah, I, I, I didn't have much of a difficult time doing that. And, you know, I got to kind of, you know, let's just say a few times here or there I got scolded by Pat Riley, which certainly uh, not for being a fan, but just for certain lines of questioning that. Uh, certainly makes you uh, a better uh, reporter. If not, you just fold like a deck of cards. So, can you share one of those? I love that stuff. Um, so I won't go into specifics about it, but okay. basically, I, I just give you. I went really hard at Eddie Jones one time, like what even so over the line that, like, in regards to just how I just kept punishing him, like, like I called him. Um, all sorts of names that weren't nice. It was very Skip Bayless-esque, you know what I mean, at that time. Nothing like, you know, uh, insensitive, but just like being mean for the sake of being mean. And you know me, that's not me. But at that time in sports radio, particularly, that was what got eyeballs, right, in a lot of ways. And this is well before Skip was was doing it on television. This was like when he was writing stuff, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, but in talk radio back then, whether it was the New York guys and Mike and the Mad Dog or Hank Goldberg in Miami or Neil Rogers in Miami, they would go at guys hard, right? Um, and I was really mean to Eddie, who was one of the nicest human beings ever. Um, I then, I apologized to him for being mean. He was like, you didn't say anything that, like, that was bad. Like, it, he was very nice about it, but Riley scolded me. Um, he was like, how dare you say that? Um, he's been so great to you and this, that, and the other. And he was right. I said, you know what? You're right. I apologized to him and I apologized to Eddie for being a gas bag on the radio. Um, but then after that, like it was just, he would show like after press conferences, occasionally, like he'd come up to me afterwards and be like, what the bleep was that about? You know what I mean? Like, and, and like kind of give me, but it was great because he would provide context for me on my line of questioning that wouldn't happen publicly. So then when I were, whenever I was able to go on the air, whether it was on radio, mostly at the time, or even on TV a little bit at that time, I'd have a better idea of where they were coming from um, in regards to some of the questions I would ask. So it was indoctrination by fire. Um, but God, you couldn't ask to learn from anyone better because, you know, Riles was the president at that time. He had just stepped down. I had a guy like Stan who was no nonsense, who I'm still friends with now. Um, and between those two guys, particularly, they made me a much better reporter at that particular time. And it's when that's when I said, I know I can do the talk show stuff because it's fun. And I, I I know how to turn it on when I need to for the showmanship part of it. But that part of it, the reporting aspect of it became a big deal to me in kind of distinguishing myself from maybe the others in that particular town at that particular time. I love that. Um, just a couple of uh, weeks ago on this show, we had uh, White Chocolate on, and we were reminiscing about that 2006 
team. And I feel like people kind of forget that he was, you know, the starting yeah. point guard for that team. You know, a he big so- part of it. Yes, big a part huge of that part of it. And, yeah. uh, you know, you associate him with the Kings, you associate him a little bit with the Grizzlies. You kind of forget that he was such a big part of that team. What do you remember from that first championship team in, in, in 2006? I remember, actually, I'll take you back to the previous season where they were great together. Um, they had this team uh, around Dwayne and Shaq where Alonzo had just come back because he he wouldn't um, – t- he took a buyout from Toronto after getting traded from the Nets. And so Alonzo was there. They had Christian Leitner on that team. I remember they had the top three draft picks from the 92 draft in that on that team. Keon Dooling, Damon Jones, uh, you know, a bunch of good role players around that uh, that group of guys. But they fell short, mostly because Dwayne Wade got hurt in the conference finals. He busted like a he had like the same injury that Justin Herbert had this past season. It was like a torn rib cartilage thing. And he tried to fight through it uh, and it just it didn't work out. Um, Eddie Jones, uh, uh, coincidentally, was on that team uh, as well. And then Riley blew it up. And I remember there was a lot of questions about, is this the right move? This team was in game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals. And then he made this massive trade, right? It was at the time the largest trade as far as players going back and forth in NBA history. It was a three-team trade. I believe it was Memphis, Miami, and I'm trying to remember the other team, but I, I don't remember at the time. But nonetheless, they bring in guys like Antoine Walker, Gary Payton, who had just come off a stint with the Lakers um, and and couldn't win with the with Kobe and Shaq. That was the year Detroit won. So who else was on that team? James Posey was a big part of that team. So they were, and Jason Williams, obviously. So they redid that team in a way where I remember the conversation around that team was, oh my God, there's not enough balls on this team. Everybody here likes to shoot it. And, you know, they're not the easiest of characters to get along, like the chemistry, what's that going to be like? And by the way, it was a chemistry experiment. That's a team that the previous year um, had won a ton of games. They won uh, less games the following year. I believe they won 52 and they needed to go on a run at the end of the year, uh, that year. But they started to gel a little bit after the All-Star break. And then in the playoffs, it's not exactly like this, but you kind of see it, right? They're, in the NBA, they talk about there's 82-game uh, guys and there's 16-game guys. Well, you ended up seeing there was a lot of 16-game guys on that team. Obviously, Dwayne was emerging as a star. Shaq was still incredible at that time. I believe, if I had to recall, the last of his prime years uh, that's what you got that that particular season. And the guys around them, whether it was Jason Williams, who had an incredible game six closeout in the Eastern Conference Finals, hit a bunch of threes in that game. James Posey playing great three and D defense. Antoine Walker hitting timely buckets uh, as kind of that third safety valve on that team. Gary Payton um, played great defense on that team, uh, played 25 to 30 minutes most nights, including playing with Jason Williams, on the floor. And I remember GP hit one of the biggest shots in that ser- in that series in the finals. Everyone talks about Dwayne, but Gary Payton was the one that hit the dagger in that game three when the Heat had that incredible comeback in 2006. And then obviously Zoe was an in- incredible component for them defensively. You couldn't ask for a better backup to Shaq at that time. But I remember all those guys being lamented as uh, guys who couldn't get it done for one reason or another and could Shaq and Dwayne and Riley pull this thing off. Cause, Oh my God, I buried the lead. Pat obviously came down after Stan left right, right. Um, and took over the team. <laughs> and yeah. And, and I remember specifically going to Dallas for game six and the headlines was Pat Riley had told everyone pack one suit and that was it. 
We're not staying in Dallas for a game. Right. That's when it used to be two, three, two. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. we're not staying in Dallas for an extra day. You pack one pair of clothes. If I see you packing one more, <laughs> more than one suit, you're not getting on the plane. And um, they, they they went down big early, and then they weathered the storm. And you know, Alonzo particularly, and Dwayne obviously uh, carried them. Shaq was okay, but Avery Johnson really made a huge mistake in that series because he doubled Shaq almost the entire series, and it let Dwayne just kind of play freely. Uh, and everything was history after that. But to to bring it all home, Jason Williams, I remember specifically after, you know, everyone's jumping for joy on the floor. Jason Williams, I was hosting the Heat pre and post game show on radio at that time. And I was on the floor and Jason Williams is my guest. And he put on the headset. And the first thing he screamed to me was, I'm not a cancer. Ah. I'm not a cancer. I'm a champion. And I was like, yeah, you are, my man. Like, it was crazy. Like, those guys got so wasted that night. It was insane. Like, I, I've seen a number of championship celebrations. I don't think I've seen guys like that in the locker room just chugging the champagne the way those guys did. That is amazing. And, yeah, he was kind of branded as such. Um, I love those memories. And and you were there for, correct me if I'm wrong, like half of the Heatles, right? Because in, in the I middle was there of the- for everything but the last year when they lost to San Antonio. Okay, uh, so were were you at the Ray Allen game? Yeah. Wow. What was that yeah. like covering that team? So I mean, I know that's hilarious. like a crazy question because you could probably talk about it for like eight hours, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, well, I, I'll just start with the crazy part of all of this. Is I was sitting next to um, you. Remember at the time, ESPN had something called the Heat Index, right? Yes. Yes. And because they it was that intense, right? The coverage for that team was unlike anything I'd ever seen. And ESPN had this is me pre ESPN still. Um, the only t- I would come on occasionally on first take to do stuff, uh, but I was not an ESPN employee at the time. I do like Sports Center hits or whatever. Um, and Michael Wallace. So the Heat Index was Brian Windhorst, Tom Haberstroh, Kevin Arnovitz, and Michael Wallace. Uh, those were the four journalists that were there to cover the Heat, and that, that's how invested ESPN was in that particular team at that time, and justifiably so. I mean, if you think about it, um, if you go back. Um, you have to go back to the Jordan years, basically, but like pre-cable being a huge part of what the NBA was um, to get the type of average number as far as ratings were concerned with that team. Even the Warriors did not have the average number of viewers watching the league as a whole at that time than they did when Miami had that team together. But that game, I remember the media would sit uh, right above the bowl in the 100 level. There's like a small like concourse-ish type area where there's media seats, that's where like the radio broadcasts are. Um, So I remember the ropes coming out and the yellow ropes were kind of, you know, quarantining off the the court so people wouldn't rush the court and then only the people that were supposed to go on there would go on there. And as that stuff is happening, myself and Michael Wallace, we look at each other like, all right, we might as well head down to the court. So we're walking down the steps little by little (laughs) as all this is unfolding and all of a sudden, you know, LeBron takes the shot. He misses. Mike Miller somehow runs across the court, tips it to LeBron. LeBron gets a second look, hits the three. They take the timeout. They come back. So then that Ray shot comes. LeBron takes another shot. He misses. Obviously, Bosch gets the rebound because Tim Duncan is not on the floor inexplicably. And then he kicks it to Ray. Ray is backpedaling as he catches and then you know, rises over Parker and shoots the ball. And all this as I'm walking down the steps. So all of a sudden, I am walking down the steps as, as he hits that shot. And 
the ball is in the air and I look at my, I turn around the mic, like kind of like sideways and I go, he's going to hit that bleep. And he looks at me and he's just like, his mouth is open. All of a sudden he hits the shot. We are engulfed by fans on the stairwell. Like people are running across the different sections. Like, I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to fall and like, <laughs> like saunter down these steps and break my bone, every bone in my body. Cause people are just pushing and shoving. It was like a mosh pit. It was insane. Um, and then eventually I make it down to the floor as all that stuff. And I see Ray screaming at the security people saying, get those bleeping ropes out of here. It was one of the wildest scenes ever. Obviously, Pop was going nuts because the, the officials um, had to call an official's timeout to review to see if he was behind the line. He was pissed because he wanted them to take it out quickly and try to score on the other end. So that happened. And then, uh, yeah, like it, it's just... People forget, though, there was an overtime after that. <laughs> and, the, you know, that wasn't a game winner that just tied the game. Um, and there was even an, a, game, a game seven after right. that, which was an incredibly close game. A nail biter where Tim Duncan uh, missed two bunnies where he had switched on to Shane Battier. And Shane Battier, one of my favorite people to cover in NBA history, did everything he could to just body Tim Duncan to keep him as far away from the basket as he could. But, yeah, what... Honestly, the I think it's the biggest shot in NBA history. Like, I, I don't think that, you know, Robert Ory's probably a close second, but that wasn't in the finals. By the way, your memory when it comes to these details is pretty incredible. And I like to think I have a good memory. You're, you're blowing me out of the water here with your, uh, like, <laughs> moment-by-moment details. And I want to ask you a follow-up about that moment, but in a bit, uh, you'll see where the connection comes. First, I do want to ask you about 2020 as we're kind of moving up closer to 2023. You're now working in LA, but obviously you have a soft spot for the heat. It's like the most depressing time of our lives, hopefully yeah. forever, right? Like it's the midst of the pandemic. It's the bubble. The finals are happening in September, October. It's just a whole bizarre thing. But it was, you know, a lot of people were lamenting the NBA at that point and, and getting all political with it. To me, it was like this beacon of light, right? Like something to do when there was nothing to do. How was that for you? Because I remember that 20, I'm a big Knicks fan, that 2021 Knicks team will always be near and dear to my heart because like New York was super depressing at the time and this team led by Julius Randle gave us something to be excited about. 2020, this Heat team goes on this great run. Uh, do you have that same sort of affinity for them? Are you too entrenched with the Lakers to even feel that way about the Heat? What do you remember from that? Well, I do remember uh, mind over heart at that time. So my, my pick on ESPN.com was Lakers in seven. So, oh, um, so but, but to your point, at a time where we all probably thought we were going to die, right? Um, and that's not even an exaggeration. Um, and we didn't know what was going on uh, still to that point. It was just that. It was like, oh, my God. You know, we have this thing that we can watch. And I will contend that it's still the purest form of basketball we've ever seen. Um, I think that it was some of the most skilled basketball we've ever seen in that bubble. Uh, and I'm not just talking about the Heat and the Lakers. I'm talking about right. just in general, right? Like, I think that everybody, for the most part, when the games were being played, the execution was at as high a level as I've, as I've ever seen it, uh, perhaps. But, yeah, I, I just think that watching them at that time, you know, my wife um, – was was videotaping me one time when they beat uh when they won when bam <laughs> blocked jason tatum in the bubble mm -hmm. i jumped off off the couch i you know i threw all journalistic credibility out the window because again like we didn't know what was happening and i wasn't there i was a little bummed that i wasn't there but i understood at that time 
why I wasn't there. I was the only, um, myself and Israel Gutierrez were the only two sideline reporters that did not go to the bubble. Um, yeah. So we were a little bummed, but it was, again, I, you know, I knew it was a numbers game at that time and they wanted people to, you know, do multiple roles and there were already people there for other reasons. So I, I totally understood it, but, you know, obviously you're human, but then to watch them go on this incredible run, uh, I think made all that stuff go away and, and made me just kind of enjoy it. And it was kind of cool because, um, you know, my daughter was old enough at that time where she was six years old, where she could understand a little bit what was going on. Um, so I, I thought it was kind of cool for the first time that she and I got to kind of watch basketball together uh, in a way that uh, we've probably never watched since because we were watching it all the time because the games were on at all different hours. It seems like every time um, Eric Spolstra leads a team, the Heat, to the finals, I see the same tweet pop up of him back in the day, video coordinator, and then him as a coach. Like back in uh, whatever it was, 2000 and something, he was video coordinator. What is your earliest memory of Eric Spolstra? My earliest memories of Eric Spolstra are him in Dwayne Wade's rookie year and second year, um, really working him out. Like he was a player development guy, right? And he was really, really focused on getting Dwayne's jumper to become a thing. And they would work on these mid-range shots all the time. Like you'd see them hours and hours and hours before games during the regular season uh, working out. And that was, you know, I think Eric gets a lot of credit for helping Dwayne in that aspect of his game. You know, Dwayne was going to be incredible regardless. Obviously, you know, you watch that final four run he had at Marquette. And beating Kentucky in the Elite Eight, like you knew that he had star potential. But I think there were things about his game that needed to be refined, and that was one of them. And I think Spo played a big part in that. And, and Dwayne obviously had to do the work, right? So that's the most important part. But I think the fact that Spo was his guy uh, made it made it even more fascinating. I think that's my first memory. And I do remember he and I used to joke about this, that when he was an assistant, you know, he's a kid, basically. He's only... I want to say he's like he's like seven years, eight years older than I am, uh, maybe nine. I don't know, something like that. He's in that range. And I remember when he was an assistant, he would like be pounding hot dogs before games and stuff like that. Like you'd walk into the locker room and, you know, this was Pat Riley's team or Stan Van Gundy's team or whatever. Right. And there's just a different, you know, I guess a freeness, right, to just being the assistant. You don't have like your work is done you know, the preparation part is done. And then, you know, you have some thoughts in game, but for the most part, you're not the guy where all the pressure is squarely on at that time. So I remember that, you know, Spo being kind of like that guy backwards at times during practices and things of that nature. Um, and then to see him elevate to being the coach, it was, um, you know, it was tough because there was a lot of pressure on him. You're replacing Pat Riley. and the organization at that time had very little expectation. You know, they had Dwayne, right? But Dwayne is coming off. You remember, this is Dwayne coming off a serious injury, right? Shoulders, knees, et cetera. And then he has that summer in Beijing where he goes nuts. And basically him and Kobe Bryant are the two best players on that Olympic team. And I think people start to be like, oh, okay, well, let's see what's going to happen. But then the question is, oh, well, you know, we got this rookie coach, you know, what, you know, how good can they be? And, you know, they, they, they did okay. You know, those first couple of years, but I think those first couple of years really helped him be ready for what came next, which was the experience with LeBron, Chris and Dwayne. 
Um, I, I love this clip, and I resurfaced it uh, just this morning, Tuesday morning. You speaking about Coach Spolstra while doing summer league with Dan Dakich, and uh, it's just an amazing clip in uh, 2019. Uh, yeah, 2019 yeah. in retrospect. Yes, thank you for saying that because you know now it's it's invoked to say he's one of the best coaches in the league. But I have to ask you about this for those that don't see it, and we're going to play it here. Um, you're you're calling a summer league game with Dan, and then you mentioned that he's one of the top two coaches in the league. He comes back in sort of a snarky way, says that he would take you know he would take Popovich, he would take Stevens over him. You come back, and it does seem like it gets a little tense on air. Was it actually like when you guys go to commercial? Are you guys like not speaking to each other? It's great, and in retrospect, it ages beautifully. I mean, like I would put him as top two right now in the league. So you were 100%. And probably you were right back then too. I mean, look where he ended up. Look where Stevens ended up, you know, with all due respect to Brad Stevens. But was it tense off air, like when you guys went to commercial after that moment? No, absolutely not. Because Dockage is also a talk show guy. Yeah, he's a show guy at heart. So it was, as soon as we went to break, you can even hear it at the end of the clip. I said, are we doing a talk show here? Like what's happening? Um, But yeah, at the time I said, he's one of the top two or three coaches. And I said, I don't think it's even debatable. And then that's when it started to escalate. He actually threw in Nate McMillan in there too. And again, this is no disrespect (laughs) to any of those guys, but it's like, come on, you know what I mean? Like Spolster that year, people forget. This is why he was dismissed. Um, He was coming off a season um, maybe it was 2018. I don't remember now, but he was coming off a season where two years prior, they started off 11 and 30 and their best players were Goran Dragic, Dion Waiters and Hassan Whiteside. And they went 30 and 11 the rest of the way and almost made the playoffs with a team that had no business being in the playoffs that had the worst roster in the entire sport and was in salary cap hell. Um, so that to me, like of all the years that he's, that he's done stuff, that second half of that season, I've never seen a coach coach better than that. And that that was when I said to myself, Eric has hit a different level. Like he he realized how to make this awful roster work. And then since then, I feel like he's just o- constantly overachieved on the rosters that he's had. And, and this one kind of included in that. Okay, so if we would have uh, talked, you know, early April, they're about to play the Hawks in the you know first playing game. What What's your expectations for this team? What, what are you saying? Like, what are you, what are you saying? Like how far they're going? So at the time I was like, if they end up in the, in the seventh seed, I think they've got a shot to beat Boston, right? Because they've got just a good history with them. Uh, I think it'll be tough. I don't, I don't think it's likely, but I think they have a shot, right? That was kind of my thinking going into that playing game. And I'm like, if they've got to play Milwaukee, they'll make it tough, but I, I just can't see them winning that series. So they lose that game. They end up on the Milwaukee line. and then. I'm like, I picked Bucks and Six, <laughs> like on ESPN.com. So I, I didn't have any real faith that they would win the series. Did you, but then did you think they, they would beat Chicago one, even? Did you even think they would beat Chicago? Oh, no, I thought they'd beat Chicago. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, if, I, I if the Rosen's daughter goes to that game, do they win that game? Yes, they still win. That's the, okay. I, that trick only works once. Okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that trick only works once. But okay, so the, you, think, uh, you think they're going to lose to the Bucks? Yeah, I think they're going to lose to the Bucs. Okay. Then they win game one. Giannis gets dinged up, right? And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, this is this is a, their chance. Like, they can win this thing. And, um, you know, it's funny because a lot of people will say, oh, well, the Giannis part. And look, first of all, sports in general have become a battle of attrition in a lot of ways. And, you know, not that I'm equating Giannis to Tyler Hero, but missing a 20-point-per-game score is not a small thing either. And... The other part of that is at the end of that series, 
when the chatter was about Giannis, I'm like, well, Miami was 10 points uh, better than Milwaukee per 100 possessions when Giannis was off the floor. But when Giannis was on the floor in that series, they were 16 points better per 100 possessions. So they were actually kicking their butt even when Giannis was on the floor and back in the series. So um, and then after that, uh, I felt like, oh, they've got a shot to get to the finals because I knew they'd have the Knicks after that because I picked the Knicks to be Cleveland. I didn't think Cleveland would be much resistance to the Knicks. I thought the Knicks were just more experienced. They were just tougher than them. Um, but I, I liked Miami in a series uh, against uh, against your squad. Um, and I liked, again, I, if they ended up playing Philly, I really liked them against because they've just kind of owned Philly. Um, but if they played Boston, I still liked my chances, as I mentioned originally, because I they just match up pretty well against them. And they've had so many great series against them recently that I, I thought they had a shot at least. So, yeah, once once they won that Buck series, I was like, oh, they're they have a real shot to get to the finals. Is it possible that these Heat are better without Tyler Hero? OK. Better. I don't know if I'd use that word. Um, I think that overall, at least, but I would say defensively, they are better without Tyler Hero, right? And but here's what this team has always lacked is the scoring punch. And I think that when this team has been at its peak in the Tyler Hero era is when Tyler's coming off the bench. I think a lot of the problems they had was in that starting group. He needs the ball in his hands. And Jimmy needs the ball in his hands. And remember, they had Kyle starting for a long time, too. Just too many guys that need the ball in their hands. Um, if Tyler was more willing to be a spot-up guy in that first group, maybe. But it just it never felt like it, it gelled very well this, pa- this past season during the regular season. And historically, when he's been off the bench, they've been incredible. Because he's got that freedom, right? Jimmy's off the floor mostly. He's in there, um, you know controlling the the pace of the game and they can do a good job of surrounding him with a bunch of defenders right similar to what they do when Duncan Robinson is in the game right they they're good at you know defending in that scenario um so I think that Tyler is necessary but I think that he needs to be put in the proper role and I think because of the injury it's kind of a little bit of a blessing in disguise that my guess is that if he does come back in this series and it looks like they're targeting game three, that he'd be coming off the bench anyway, which could suit them. Okay, I was just going to ask you that. What do you think Spolster does? If he is, in fact, back game three, he doesn't put him in the starting lineup, right? No, I, I don't see that. I think he – Spo is a creature of habit in a yeah. lot of ways, and he doesn't like to tinker with stuff unless he feels like it's going to give him an inherent advantage. And I just don't see in this Denver matchup that it gives you an inherent advantage because I think if Denver has one weakness or actually one of their weaknesses is that they're not super deep. They're really a a seven man team for the most part, maybe eight, um, you know, because they've got their starting five of Jokic, Murray, Porter Jr., Contavious Caldwell, Pope and Gordon. And then off the bench, they'll have Bruce Brown and Jeff Green for the most part. Right. That's seven and occasionally Christian Brown. Um, but Christian Brown did not play very much late in that Lakers series after the first game or two. So they really only go seven deep. Miami, um, if they can get Hero back all of a sudden, are the are the deeper team, um, which I think is fascinating. And I think that Tyler could really cook against that second unit of the Denver Nuggets. Up 3-0 against Boston, when do you start to get nervous? After game five... After like what, what, um, what game four? Uh, I would say game six 
was like, it was weird, right? Because the, it happens, right? The, sh- they, the shot with Derek White happens. And by the way, did you, did you think they had won? Are, are you like those dudes at the, uh, the wedding who celebrated? How did you? No, react? no, because I, I, I've been in too many of these, you know what I mean? Okay. So like my wife jumped off the couch thinking they had won. And then I'm like, no, 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 wait, we got to see if he got it off on time. Um, and then when the replay came and I saw he still had, he had gotten it off with two tenths or a 10th or whatever. I'm like, man, there it is. I said, so after that, it was weird. Cause I'm like, I'm curious to see what the reaction is, right? Because in the immediacy of it, I'm like, I'm like everybody else. Wow, that's a crushing way to lose. And immediately it brought me back to the Ray Allen shot. That's the one I was, yeah, that's that's yeah. the connection, right? That's where it brought me back. And I'm like, this is exactly how everyone in San Antonio must have felt at that time. And the Spurs must have felt. Um, and then I thought to myself, but you know what? The Spurs were a resilient bunch. They were, it was, you know, they were right in there till literally the end uh, against the Heat in game seven. So does this team have it? Let's see what the press conferences look like. Because to me, that stuff is always telling, right? Like I, not that I'm some sort of Bill Simmons body language expert, um, but, you know, I, I feel like I've been in enough of these to see kind of what people are made of. And when I saw Spo and Jimmy as defiant as they were and Spo, listen, Spo doesn't write checks. He can't cash. Okay. Like, and he's out there saying we would suit up right now and tip the ball again for 48 minutes right now. When he did that, yeah. I'm like, oh, they're going to be fine. Like they're going to be in this game. And then I started to kind of do a little homework the next day. Right. So I knew that historically, and we get a little gambling, get a little gambling in here. Historically, uh, the under on conference on game sevens um, hit at like a 63% rate. And I'm like, well, if the game goes under, it gives the Heat a legit chance to win the game because they want to play in the mud anyway. Um, so I felt pretty good. Like I was actually the one in the immediacy of it. I was like, wow, that's awful. Brutal. And then as more time went on, as the night went on and the next day went on, I became the guy on my friends group chats to just like, I think they're going to be in this thing. Like, I think they're going to be in a game seven. That's all you can ask for in a game seven. Right. Like if they're if it's low scoring and they're in it, like I, I like their chances. And then I saw Spo in the shoot around yes. um, media. Thank and you. He, he made some comment where like, you know, it's a privilege to play in these game sevens. And, you know, you basically, you basically, he said something to the effect of, you see if you can take it, right. You see what you're made of. Right. And he was so matter of fact about it that I'm like, oh, they're ready. Like they are absolutely ready. And so when they came out and weathered that initial storm where Boston started four of six and they were like one of like seven or eight or two of eight or whatever it was. And then they started to, to come like back. I'm like, oh, they're they're fine. Like they're they're gonna be fine. Look, the Tatum injury obviously helps. I don't think it's the end all be all. I know some people will scoff at that, but I just feel like they were always the more tougher team in this series. Uh, Malcolm Brogdon said in the beginning of the series, you may remember, he said that they're not gonna out tough us. Um, but I feel like if you listen to him yesterday in the press conference that he had in the, at the podium. He lamented the fact that they always leaned on offense, this team, as opposed to the previous year where they leaned on defense. And he felt like Miami um, was never rattled. They were completely calm and that they felt like a little uneasy at times in that game. 
Um, that I'm paraphrasing, but that was basically what he said. So uh, I, I still think even if Jason is healthy, like I just still feel like Miami was the more cool, calm, collected and tougher team. And they were going to be ready no matter what in that game. And Boston looked, you know, like they were like the pressure had shifted on them, particularly early uh, in that game. I'm so happy that you mentioned the post game six stuff, because I don't know if it's us media guys who like to analyze this stuff ad nauseum and look into it because we're in these rooms and we like to read the body language and all that. I thought that Miami was done. I thought that they were toast immediately after game six. And then I saw the press conferences and not just Spolstra's and you laid out everything perfectly, but also Joe Missoula's. And I know he's taking some heat and I kind of feel like deservedly so. He seems like a deer in the headlights. Like even hearing that clip of him in the locker room, I've never met him, so I'm not trying to be mean, but he's like, don't forget to smile out there. Like, what are you talking about, man? It's game seven. What are you, is the, we're not going to the park here. We're going to freaking make some history. Don't forget to smile. And he sits there like kind of like this the whole time. And Spolster's up there. And he's, and then I saw the clip of him at shoot-around where he says, it's a privilege. And this is not for everyone. And this for us, I was like, I want this guy leading me to battle. Like, what a freaking legend. And then I knew it was done. And I don't know, like, I didn't put it out there beforehand, so I can't claim it. But you watch that and you watch what Jimmy says, like, I remember Ewing guaranteeing victory, and that's back page news in the New York Post. Spolstra and Butler pretty much guaranteed victory, and everyone was just like, all right, let's move on. Like, no, they actually called it. One of the most, dare I say, and maybe I'm a prisoner of the moment, one of the most impressive victories in recent NBA playoff history, up 3-0, then to lose like that in game six, go on the road in Boston, and not just beat them, but like... 10-7 them, like beat them down. It wasn't even close. That's a a boxing reference. Like that to me is so damn impressive to do that in Boston. So I I have so much respect for those guys. I I wish that my team had a coach like that. And that's no knock on tips, but like the guy is just so free. I mean, top two, you're right from 2019. I mean, he is, he's born and raised through the heat culture, literally. You know what I mean? Like he came with 1995 in the video room and worked his way through the dungeon. That's what they used to call it. Uh, in the old Miami arena, they called it the dungeon. And he he's kind of, as he likes to say, forged through fire, right? Um, you know, it's not easy replacing a legend, as we talked about earlier. And, and I think that this run, um, I think, for them has been the most fun because it's probably, I mean, the bubble was probably not something that people expected either. But this is even, people expected this even less, right? right. Just based on what what it's you know, where they were in the regular season, the playing stuff, as you mentioned. But Eric Spolster right now is Neo in the Matrix. He can stop all the bullets. He can just kind of, you know, do the body motions, right? Like as things are flying by him, he just has seen it all at this point. And he doesn't have the better team in this series either, probably. So uh, they're massive underdogs. But to your point, if you look at him as a underdog of more than minus 300, He's only lost one series in those scenarios, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. When they are the biggest underdogs, that's when he is at his best and his teams are at their best. And that's a testament to him and a testament to the fact that that organization, from Mickey Harris and Pat Riley, et cetera, let him coach freely. Not every coach in this league gets to coach freely. It's his show. And it's been his show for a long time. And, you know, they embrace the potential discussions and contentiousness and all the stuff that comes with that. And that means him in the front office and the him and the players. And 
I mean, hell, remember last season, him and Jimmy Butler in a game against the Warriors at home were legitimately like going at it. Um, you know, he slammed his clipboard. Um, Jimmy and him are barking at each other and Spoke barks back at him. He's like, what, you want to bleeping fight me? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> this is who they are. And it's who they've always been. And it's what Pat Riley instilled when the culture of the Heat culture was born on September 2nd, 1995, when he was on one of Mickey Arison's cruise ships doing his first press conference, talking about the level of accountability that they would have in that organization. This is why you're the perfect guy to have this conversation. You knew the freaking date. I know that as uh, the time where he faxed his resignation, Pat the Rat, uh, <laughs> you knew the date of the of the press conference. And I was just re-watching, by the way, the clip that you posted of his first game back at MSG, straight out of pro wrestling. Like, could you imagine, yes. as you put it, could you imagine a coach doing that, egging the crowd on, you know, like calling for the booze? It was just... <laughs> it would break, it would have broken yeah. social media had so, at, if that was today. Like in yes. 2023, if Pat Riley goes into Madison Square Garden <laughs> and does what he did that day in Like Hollywood Hogan. It would be insane, yes. By the way, what is your definition of heat culture? Um, so Riles has a, uh, a definition, and I don't remember it off the top of my head, but it's like um, most professional, toughest, nastiest, um, most prepared, disliked team in the NBA, something like that. I don't have all of the adjectives, um, but it's, I, I named them a bunch of them. There may be one or two missing, but it's that. And it's, it is, they, it's look, the, even when they were going to play Milwaukee, right. Um, or when they were in the play in scenario, all the pundits, regardless of whether they thought they could beat any of these teams or not, were all like, you don't want to play Miami, right? Like you don't want to play them in the first rounds. It's going to be, you know, a bloodbath. You're going to come out of it bruised and battered. And that's it. Like, that's what they are. And, it, you know, it started with those teams that lost to the Knicks three times, right? With Alonzo and Timmy and Mashburn and those guys and P.J. Brown. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of continued, right, through the years where I think that Udonis Haslam kind of became that guy, right, where he embodied the Heat culture, the undrafted guy. Because here's the thing with Riles, people think – Armani, slicked hair, Showtime Lakers, all that stuff. Pat Riley is Schenectady, New York, man. Lunch pail, blue collar, dad worked in a factory. Like that stuff is Pat Riley. Pat Riley as a player in, in, the, in college was, I don't know, uh, LeBron, right? Like he was the biggest star in, 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 in college, right? He was Grant Hill, right, in college. But in the NBA, he was Bruce Bowen. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like he had to scrap and claw for every minute. He was a defensive guy who he was a three and D player in a time where there was no three and D. You know what I mean? Like, well, there was no three, actually. So, like, that's what he was. So he's always appreciated those guys. It's why guys like John Starks um played with the Knicks and Anthony Mason. And, you know, I can go down a laundry list of guys with the Heat even before Udonis has them, like Ike Austin. Uh, you know, it was a guy that they they brought out of nowhere. Um, but Udonis is kind of the guy that embodied that. And it's why when the big when the Heatles came together, the big three came together, Dwayne went to LeBron and Chris and said, yeah, I know we want Mike Miller because we want a shooter or whatever, that first team. But we got to take less to get Udonis. Like, you don't understand how important Udonis is to what we're going to do. And I feel bad for Udonis because he probably left over his career like $15 million on the table to take less for the heat multiple times. Um, and in that situation, I felt even worse for him 
because in that first LeBron year, he busted his foot and he didn't play most of the year because uh, of that injury. Came back in the conference semis against Boston, looked terrible, couldn't hit the side of the backboard, um, just looked all out of sorts. Imagine, hadn't played all seasons, getting thrusted into the playoffs. And then uh, Spo went to him. I'll never forget this. They lose game one in Chicago. Derek Rose and them torched them. Uh, after the game, this, I'm still working local at the time, so I was doing sports radio in Miami, and I was working for CBS4 in Miami. So we're doing their kind of local sports show after the game from the court. And after we're done, Charles Barkley, my guy, comes up to me and says, your boys are done, man. Your boys are done. And I was like, okay. And then in that next game, Udonis comes off the bench and absolutely shuts down Joakim Noah, who had been killing them uh, in that game, that game two in Chicago. And he punctuated it in a fast break. I'll never forget. He just yammed it on him. And I remember like the entire arena was like, whoa, in Chicago. And like the media section all like popped up like, holy moly, this dude had a broken foot for the whole season and was able to do that still. Um, so yeah, to me, that's what it is. That's what embodies the heat culture. The guys like Udonis Haslam, who they can basically have as an extension of the coaching staff, right? And guys like Caleb Martin, Gabe Vincent, Max Strews, Duncan Robinson. Um, you know, everyone thinks about the Dwayne Wades of the world and LeBrons and Boshes and Shaqs and all that. Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo. No, it's those guys, right? Caleb Martin, who almost won MVP of the Eastern Conference Finals. That's heat culture. It's those guys. That's what has always separated Pat Riley and to me is a bigger part of his legacy than any of the other stuff uh, that gets talked about way more. Okay, last one, and 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 this is the biggest one, and this has been tremendous. Thank you so much for this. I'm uh, I'm so excited for game one now. Just hearing your passion and, and the memories of uh, you know yesteryear, uh, your pick. I, I've I've gone on record. I've said Nuggets in five. Uh, I think a lot of Heat fans think that I'm being a salty Knicks fan by saying that, but I just think that they're too damn good. And I will say, I do have a soft spot for those markets that have never won one before. You guys have won enough. You even have the freaking Florida Panthers in the Stanley Cup final, for goodness <laughs> sakes. All of a sudden, there's a bunch of Panthers fans on my timeline. I never knew that a single person was a Panther fan. It's unbelievable. I'm seeing rats all over the place. What the hell is this? Um, anyway, your official pick. Can you make one? I can, yes. Okay. I'm not on the series, so I, 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 when I'm on the series, I don't make the pick. Like I, Lakers, Denver. Even though I felt Denver was the better team, um, and I kept reiterating that to my audience in LA who didn't love to hear that. Um, I didn't make a pick there, but I, I actually think that he can win in seven. Wow. And I, I think that he can win in seven. I think Denver has the best player on the floor in Nikola Jokic. I think Jimmy looks like he doesn't have lift right now, but I just believe that. Like I mentioned to you earlier, I think they're the deeper team right now, especially if they get Tyler back. And if they can, all they need to do, um, and easier said than done, right, is win a game in Denver, uh, which has been a house of horrors for them. They haven't won there since 2016 when Jokic and Murray were coming off the bench uh, back then. I believe Yusuf Nurkic was the wow. starting center for the Denver Nuggets at that particular time. Um, but I just feel like this is where, and, and, and this is not a shot at Michael Malone because I don't think, I think Michael Malone is an excellent coach, but I think in a series where I think it's closer than, than most people think. And I think this one is a little bit more of a toss up, uh, than people are giving it credit for, even though the nuggets are minus three eighty to win the series. Um, in those scenarios in a series, I think it's close. I'm going to lean towards the coaching and I'm going to lean towards Spo in that scenario finding some magic, right? Like unveiling 
you know, like he did the other night, you know, yesterday and, and a couple of nights ago, he kind of found something with Haywood Highsmith, right? Again, another one of those guys that just comes out of nowhere, out of the G League. Um, so I, I think that Denver's weakness, as I mentioned, is I think that they're not the deeper team. Also, as good as their perimeter defense has been, and they, but they have lapses on defense, particularly because they're poor in the paint. They are poor defending the paint. Teams shoot 69% in the paint at the rim against, not in the paint, at the rim against them. So I think this could be a series if Jimmy is right. Um, and he didn't look like he had a ton of lift at the end of that series against Boston. But if he's right, they can get to the free throw line uh, in that series and slow things down. And I think that can can turn the tide in, in Miami's favor. But it'd be if they can get one of those first two, uh, I think that they're in great shape. The first game would obviously be the one that you would expect uh, for them to try to get because the rest versus rust situation. Right. Well, I hope you're right. I hope we get seven more. I'm not ready for the season to come to a close. And I would have been disappointed, by the way, if you would have picked the the Nuggets. You got to go for you. I mean, <laughs> come on. And 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 why not? They have a great shot. Uh, this has been so much fun, man. Uh, keep up the great work. I'm such a big fan. You're doing amazing stuff. Um, on the radio in LA, but anytime I get to hear you on the broadcast doing the sideline stuff, radio, TV, uh, I know that we are getting, you know, A-plus pro-level stuff. So thank you so much for the time. Sorry for going so long. I no, really appreciate don't it. I apologize. This was fun. I haven't talked to you at length in a long time, so it was good to to do this. I know your passion for basketball. I love it. I've always loved it. Uh, I miss you. Uh, we uh, you. Next time you're in LA, you need to hit me up. Uh, and if I'm in New York, I will do the same. But thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Um, and I hope to chit chat with you again soon. Maybe uh, maybe after the series. Who knows? Yes, that's true. Thanks, my man. Appreciate it. You got it. Take care. All right. How great was that? What a wealth of knowledge. Unbelievable memory. Great stories. I feel like we could have talked about all those stories for hours but he had to go. I appreciate George's insight very much. If you want to hear more from him, check him out, ESPN LA 710. They put their podcasts up. I listen to them all the time. And like I said, sideline reporter for uh, ESPN and ABC's NBA coverage, does some radio work on the broadcast as well. The guy does it all and is an absolute mensch of a human being as well. So thank you very much to George Sedano. Now, Wednesday on the podcast, we are going to preview the Denver Nuggets side of the story, and we'll be doing so with a longtime, very good friend of mine and the biggest Denver Nuggets fan that I know. His name is Chuck Mendenhall. I host a Ringer MMA show with him. I've been doing shows and MMA coverage with him for well over a decade, and this man is without a doubt the biggest Nuggets fan I know, but like lives and breathes the Nuggets. He is an uber fan, a mega fan, an ultra fan, and he is now experiencing his team making it to the finals for the very first time in their history. So this is a really big deal and you will see the passion. You will feel it. You will, you will it'll like radiate off the, the little earbuds, the things that you're listening, wherever you're listening to this, you will feel the passion and the emotion and what this means to not only Chuck, but to Nuggets fans all over the world. So I'm very excited to share that one. That will come on Wednesday morning for now though. Thank you so much to George Sedano for his time. Great insight. Check him out wherever he is, and on social media as well. He is a great follow. And thanks to all of you for continuing to follow and to rate and subscribe and review and all those things and more. Thanks to the production team. I really enjoyed doing these shows, and we're going to keep it rolling. So stay tuned for the Nugget side of the story tomorrow. We shall say goodbye for now. Finals coming up on Thursday. It's a great time to be a basketball fan. I cannot wait. I hope you are.
as excited as I am. Until Wednesday, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.